This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Marty Hayden is joining us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Solter. Marty is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. Earth Justice on the web at earthjustice, that's all one word, dot O-R-G. Um, Marty, first of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Good morning, Bob, and thanks. Thank you very much for having me on. When you hear news from the Trump administration on the climate and on areas like climate change, is there is that news conflicting even within the administration these days? Well, the, the National Climate Assessment that came out on... Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. was the result of 13 agencies under the Trump administration that leveled the most dire warning we have heard on climate to date. Meanwhile, as you know, the president then, in reaction to that, says he doesn't believe it. Well, he can stick his head in the sand, in the sand all he wants on climate change, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Why do you think there seems to be such a disconnect on his part with, you know, findings like what we heard from this effort? I think it could be either one of two things. Um, And the first is maybe more disturbing than the second, although they both are disturbing. Uh, The first is either the president really does believe climate change is a hoax, or the second is climate change gets in the way of what he and his administration are doing and want to do for King Coal and Big Oil. You know, when he says that, you know, he he puts it sometimes very simply and will say, I don't believe it. I mean, those simple words are yet very powerful. How do advocates for the environment, advocates for the idea that climate change is occurring, how do you really work around that? Well, I think there's, you know, the very core of President Trump base uh, believes everything he says. So I don't think that's, uh, you know, I, I think the rest of the country, I think, you know, what is probably 70 percent or maybe better of the country isn't denying climate change. In fact, we know from uh, polling that about 70 percent of the country believes climate change is real and it's something important that we we address. And, you know, we're about to have we're about to have some important help here. And that was uh, the results of the 2018 elections in the U.S. House. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a green wave that came into the House in 2018. The sun is about to come out and there's nothing better than sunshine for exposing all that the Trump administration is trying to do to pander to big oil and king coal. And climate change is no longer going to be a a hoax in the U.S. House. And the power that the House is going to have 
is we have climate champions taking over all of the relevant committees that oversee issues related to climate change in the House of Representatives. And they're going to be able to hold the administration accountable through real oversight, compelling the release of information. They can subpoena. In some cases, they can depose witnesses. And this is an administration that has been completely unaccustomed to having any kind of meaningful oversight on it by the Congress. That new House majority starting in January, realistically, what kind of priorities should we expect when it comes to the environment? Well, I think they're going to be a lot. First off, so I already mentioned the, about the uh, the chairs taken over, how they're, we're, we're going from with folks who have lifetime environmental voting records in the 90s or taken in the mid-90s, actually, are taking over these committees, replacing people on the Republican side at bin chairs that are in the single digits. It's a huge change. On top of that, we have a probably the most impressive class of incoming new members I have seen in 30 years of doing this work. They are energized, they are committed, and and for the most part, they are very green. And so there's a lot of energy in the House. So to get back to your question, I think we're going to see a lot of attention in a lot of areas across the board. I'll just flag a few. In the climate space, they're going to be Digging into the National Climate Assessment, I guarantee it. I think the report we were just talking about, they're going to dig deep on the administration's efforts to undo the Clean Power Plan, which is the climate rule to reduce carbon pollution from power plants. They're going to go after They're going to dig into their efforts to undo the methane rules, which reduce that powerful greenhouse gas emission from oil and gas development. And then I'm sure, certain they will dig into the clean cars rule, which is something the Trump administration is trying to undo, that is to make our cars be less polluting uh, both now and in the future. Outside of the climate space, I guarantee you they will look at, into the clean water rule, which protects the drinking water for one in three Americans. The Trump administration is talking about undoing the mercury rule for power plants. That rule saves 11,000 lives each and every year right now, and nearly every power plant in the U.S. complies with it. Yet the Trump administration is looking at undoing it. Uh, just to name one last, well, a couple more. I think, I think they will get into the administration's decision not to go forward with a ban on chlorpyrifos, which is a dangerous pesticide. That was a, that's a neurotoxin that was first developed by the Nazis in World War II, and it's sprayed on our fruits and vegetables today, and it threatens our children and farm workers. They will also look at what the president's been up to on national monuments, particularly the shrinking of the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase national monuments in Utah, as well as I'm confident they will dig in deep on the administration's plans for oil and gas leasing off of all of our coasts and in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So do you expect that there's going to wind up being oversight from that new House majority, or are we going to be seeing things that will basically wind up with it being gridlock? Well, I think you can't gridlock oversight. And 
what I mean by that is they, they, they have ways of compelling the administration to produce the goods. So they can't, they can't exactly, they can't ignore them or else they face, they, they really create problems for themselves. So that's now in terms of gridlock with the hot, with the Senate and uh, with the Senate and the, in charge of, sorry, in terms of gridlock with the Senate run by uh, the Republicans, and then of course with President Trump needed to sign uh, legislation. For the most part, this is going to be a be a time for building, you know, for building the political will to take meaningful action on climate. We'll be able to pass a lot of bills out of the House, but the Senate won't move much. However, there are bills that are important to both of those bodies and to the president. And I think one of the first ones of that type that'll be, you know, coming to the fore is the infrastructure bill. And within a big infrastructure bill, there is the opportunity to do a lot of climate smart uh, policies and investments. And I think things like, promoting and supporting the electrification of transportation, whether that's buses, cars, freight, you know, freight terminals or ports can happen, could happen in an infrastructure bill, making our electricity grids both more resilient and more aligned to help get more renewable energy to market can also be part of this. Helping communities build up their resiliency in the face of the impacts of climate change. But the, the climate assessment that just came out, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, or actually, I'm sorry, the climate assessment that just came out a little over a week ago, you know, pointed out we're already having the climate impact today. I mean, many of us knew this, but here is the, you know, nation's foremost scientist saying, yes, it's happening today. What we're seeing happening is because of climate. Our seas has, has risen seven to eight inches already, and half of that has been since 1993. And right now, 25 cities in the Atlantic and Gulf Coast are dealing with daily tidal flooding. This, these impacts are real. The, the, you know, the, the severe heavy rainfall, the, the intense frequent rainfall that we've seen here in the east, this this summer. That's related to climate. The report verifies that. So there are things we can do to help our communities, you know, prepare for those impacts and things, investments we can make in an infrastructure bill. And I think, I think that, that type of uh, legislation does have a chance. Marty Hayden is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. He's our guest on our program and is uh, sharing some information with us. For those who don't know, how do you describe what Earth Justice is all about? Uh, Well, Earth Justice's tagline is because the Earth needs a good lawyer. And as an organization, we're a nonprofit. We're the nation's largest nonprofit environmental law firm. We provide free legal representation to Every, everyone from grassroots environmental groups to national, every national environmental organization you can name, to impacted communities, farm worker advocates, Native American tribes, and more. 
And to date, we have brought 115 cases against the Trump administration and counting. Uh, we are, you know, while I just said in, in Congress, you're not going to be able to pass big legislation and get it signed by the president, but we can stop the president and the courts. And that's what we do. Should be interesting watching exactly what does take place. Marty, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us on our program. Thank you very much. Marty is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation, and uh, we'll certainly be watching this situation. The organization is on the web at earthjusticeallisoneword.org. It's the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall is by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update on The Fan this Sunday morning. Radio.com. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Salter, joined by Felicia Cornblue. Felicia is Associate Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. She's the author of The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics, and Poverty in Modern America, which was from University of Pennsylvania Press. We're talking with her today specifically about Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. This is a publication that's been put together along with the co-author, Gwendolyn Mink. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. So many areas where I um, think we can go in discussion, but an obvious one to me, start us off is that title. Was that the only title for this publication? That was the title we settled on because I think we would all like to believe that the the programs that we have, the government programs we have that uh, call themselves anti-poverty programs, mm-hmm. that they are reducing poverty. <laughs> that's, that that's what they're designed to do and that that's what they do. But what we've found is in the recent past, there's really no chance of that, but that, that almost by design, these programs are ensuring poverty. They're guaranteeing that we have poverty. They're not really um, even made to reduce poverty or eliminate poverty. So we wanted to call attention to that big irony uh, before we even said anything else in the book. Well, whatever happened to that time... It seems like it wasn't that long ago, though I know it was, way back in 1996, when we heard this talk about welfare reform and, quote-unquote, ending welfare as we knew it. Well, I think, I think that was a very popular political slogan of the mm. period, right? What, what had happened was that welfare had become um, hugely controversial for complicated reasons and maybe also for like uncomplicated reasons of sexism and racism and it was thought to be a program that was serving you know non-white women um although that wasn't really true either um and then when bill clinton came into office well when he was running for president what he found on the campaign trail was that of all of the political slogans that he threw out there, the most popular one was end welfare as we know it. And um, his campaign people even said later 
that they they developed a little acronym for it because it became like it was like you know you're going to give this speech in Altoona or whatever, and then you slow it you throw in the end welfare as we know it piece, and they would just <laughs> they would just you know uh, throw that in as almost uh, um, as almost a catchphrase, mm-hmm. and he never said exactly what he meant by that. But then when he came into office, he felt like he needed to actually do something that was consistent with that slogan. So he had his own kind of welfare reform policy, which I think that I think Clinton thought it wouldn't be so bad because he also thought that he was going to be able to dramatically change the health care system and that everybody would have some kind of terrific health care. Um, and then the Republicans took both houses of Congress in November 1994, I don't know if people remember, but that was the first time in two generations we had Republican and pretty conservative Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. And then they wrote an even more conservative welfare reform policy, and they kind of dared Bill Clinton and said, okay, you know, you went on the campaign trail and said you were committed to ending welfare. Here's a policy that would let you do that. And they dared him to sign the bill. And ultimately, for political reasons, he did. And it was a major, major transformation to what had been a really signal Democratic program and a Democratic commitment that had been around since the 1930s. But at this point, and there seems to be this debate, division, however you want to phrase it, about the real direction of the Democratic Party uh, these days. And welfare reform is one of the areas which often comes up in discussion. What have you found? What what can we really expect to see? Well, I think what started to happen in 2016 was really interesting. Um, There was a real debate during the Democratic primaries between a more mainstream wing of the Democratic Party and another wing, we could call it more progressive or whatever. Um, and it was in part because of Bernie Sanders' candidacy, but it was also because of other kinds of forces, the kinds of forces that I think um, also helped Sanders. So it was the Black Lives Matter movement, and it was a rising feminist movement that I think was in part inspired by Hillary and by the prospect of having a woman president, but also wanted to go further, you know, wanted, it wanted to have a genuinely progressive feminist kind of politics. Um, so that debate started, and then it was sort of all brushed under the rug um, when the the challenge of Trump became so evident and when Trump was actually elected. Um, but I think that that's still there. And it's a conversation or a comeuppance, you could even say, in the Democratic Party that really needs to happen. And and it hasn't really happened yet. It hasn't fully happened yet. So, like, during the, the course of the 2016 elections, Hillary Clinton was forced to reexamine some of the very conservative policies of her husband's administration from the 1990s. Like, she was forced by the Black Lives Matter people in particular to say, yeah, we made mistakes when we we had a, a quote-unquote tough-on-crime policy, right? They created new categories of federal crime, and they built new federal prisons. And she was forced to say, yeah, that was a mistake, and we should have fought harder to make sure that, there, we, you know, that we weren't creating new racial inequities and that kind of thing in the criminal justice system. So I think what I would want, and the, the coalition of people that I've been part of for many years, 
would would want is that uh, they that that the mainstream of the Democratic Party take the same kind of self-critical look at what they did in the 1990s around welfare reform, and then that they start saying it's time for us to chart a new course, a new course that will be good for poor people, but really will be good for all American families, and will help will help anybody who's doing really significant caregiving work for their kids or for their elderly parents or relatives or anybody, that they would be able to turn to some government help in times of need. You know, we haven't done it yet, but I think there's a real chance, at least among Democrats, among people who think of themselves as progressives, as among people who think of themselves as feminist or pro-family, I think there's a real opportunity for us to not just have that conversation, but maybe to maybe to start to develop some policies as well. One of the things that you point up out in the book, Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective, is how it is that welfare reform kind of provided a path or paved the way, I guess you could say, for what came to be known as the Tea Party being a mass movement. And to some extent, I guess, even the election of Donald Trump? Yeah, I think you don't ever want to just focus on one factor. There are a lot of factors that that other people have identified. But I think that the set of stereotypes from the 1990s that were, you know, that were originated um, by, let's say, conservatives in Congress and that were floated and endorsed by the Democrats in the White House, um, and ultimately that became part of this legislation, this welfare reform legislation, that Democrats never renounced. Mainstream Democrats never renounced it. They just said, oh, what a great success this welfare reform has been. I think what that did was that it locked in those stereotypes about poor people, about women, about black people or non-white people, and also about government itself, right? That, and if it, when you look at some of the research and and you look at people um, people who have who started voting for the Tea Party in recent years and who later voted for Donald Trump, and people are very very anti-government. Um, but when you dig behind the people's initial reactions about about government in general, what you find is that people still identify government very much with what with welfare, and that there are a set of stereotypes about welfare and people who receive welfare that kind of lie behind more general anti-government attitudes. And I think that that's been driving some of our conservative politics. And the Tea Party voters, there's a sociologist at Harvard who, who interviewed a lot of Tea Party voters, and the number one thing that they identified as was as quote-unquote workers, and there's an idea that, and of course, it's great to be a worker, but there's an idea that people have that somehow I am a worker and there's somebody else over there who's not a worker. And that what government does, you know, when you have a bad idea about government, a negative idea about government, that what government does is it takes money away from the worker and gives it to the non-worker. And I think somehow we have to counter that. You know, it's just a big myth. Um, and I think it's undercut people's faith in every part of government, you know, like researchers will start talking to somebody about environmental regulation and they're like, oh, I hate the hand of big government, you know, even though maybe they're living in a part of the country that really could use some environmental regulation. 
And then you go a little further, and people just spontaneously start talking about welfare. Like, I don't know what government's bad because it's going to give money to some, you know, immoral mother who's raising her kids and eating bonbons all day. And, you know, it's a total fantasy. There is there's no such mother out there sitting around eating bonbons all day and, you know, getting rich on the government check. But that it's a very, very powerful myth. And I don't think we can run away from it. I think we really have to, you know, address it head on. And people who people in my position as researchers have to be willing to really call it out as uh, as nothing but a myth. And I think people in politics have to be willing to say, you know, that's a lie and we can do better as a society. What does the research show about the program that, for lack of a better term, was known as welfare in terms of the size of it and the number of people who are actually um, receiving aid? Well, it's a pretty small program. Um, That's one of the interesting things is that it's almost like a funhouse mirror effect that it's become... You know, it's become sort of identified with the whole government um, as though, you know, any any government purpose is essentially welfare. Um, but it's a tiny portion of, of government spending. Um, and and it's really a small, a small and um, diminishing number of people who receive this kind of aid over time. So, um, you know, since the 1990s, it's just gotten smaller and smaller. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting how, you know, how, how something can be so, can loom so large in our imagination, but actually be so small um, in terms of, you know, how much our taxes are paying for it or, or how many people are actually receiving the aid. The book's entitled Ensuring Poverty. Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective, Felicia Kornblu, K-O-R-N-B-L-U-H is her last name. She's our guest this portion of our program on The Fan. We're talking with Felicia Kornblu on our program She has spent over 25 years studying and doing advocacy work on social justice issues. You served on the Women's Committee of 100. What exactly was that body? So that was an organization that we stitched together from around the country, uh, researchers and professors and writers working together and we came together under the slogan, a war against poor women is a war against all women. So we all identified as feminists, and what we wanted to say was as feminists and as people who had been doing research in this area, that we understood that um, that the rhetoric and the policies that were being mobilized for quote-unquote welfare reform in the 1990s were going to be harmful, not just to the poorest women, but, but to all women. And I guess what we meant by that was a couple of things. One is if we start if we start trying to mess around with people's families and their romantic decisions and their sexual decisions, and that's a lot of what this welfare reform was about. It was about saying that women were, you know, having too many kids or having kids at the wrong time or, you know, that they were having kids out of wedlock and they should be getting married to guys, even if the guys were abusive or whatever. Right, that that was actually a compromise of our reproductive rights, um, potentially, and that we didn't want 
you know, for the sake of all women, we didn't want to be messing with that that kind of politics and that kind of conversations. That could be very, very harmful if the government had that kind of intrusive attitude. And then also the understanding that many, many women are economically vulnerable at some point in their lives because they're raising kids or because they're caring for elders or caring for people who are disabled or sick or something, um, or because they get into a bad relationship, you know, with somebody who's abusive or violent and they need to get out of there and they may not have savings in their own name. Um, they may not even have a credit card in their own name. So, and that that's a, that that's a typical thing that happens to many, many women or can happen to many, many women. So we wanted to make that claim. And on the basis of that, we went around and we, we did as much public education as we could, and we lobbied Congress repeatedly um, around this welfare reform proposal in the middle 90s. And then over the years when that proposal was um, being considered for reauthorization and uh, when changes were being considered, we came back to Washington again and again and lobbied again. Um, and I'll just say one incident from that, which was really interesting, was I went and I, I did lobbying visits with Betty Friedan, the famous feminist writer whose book, The Feminine Mystique, was one of the things that set off the modern wave of feminism. And I never thought I would meet her, but she was somebody who really, she really believed that this was, this was an important issue, not just for this, you know, one relatively small group of people, but that it opened the door to a set of things that could be problematic for all women and for the cause of women's rights and women's dignity. One of the things that you mention, and it's near the start of uh, your book, is the claim that welfare reform effectively has shortened women's lives. What evidence is there to back that up? Well, there's good evidence, and it was only... um, from a few states, but public health researchers did do research in several states, and they looked carefully at um, at the evidence from before the welfare reform and after. And it's a it's a really it's a shocking thing, you know, to think that um, a government policy is shortening people's lives by half a year. But if you think about it, it's not that surprising. You know, what's happening is that, especially for for people who, for whatever combination of reasons, don't make it into the labor market. If somebody, so so the welfare reform of 1996 says that nobody can get benefits for more than five years, right, over over their lifetime. And that's a federal maximum. There are individual states that, that make it much shorter than that. So there's a real harsh timeline. So if you take somebody who, let's say they've been in a domestic violence situation, and they have kids who are not yet full, you know, full day, full time in school, they may need more than that five years or more than whatever their state's, you know, time limit is. And when they lose benefits, they're forced to make very, very harsh and difficult choices. You know, do I get food for my kids or do I get food for me? You know, do I get the medicine that I need for, I don't know, my diabetes or for my hypertension or uh, my antidepressants or whatever, or do I forego that medication so that I have a little more money? Um, you know, do I do I go to this office uh, where I can get some help? 
um, or do I not go because I can't even afford the bus fare or the tank of gas in my car? Like those are the kinds of decisions that people who are on the economic margins are really forced to make. And any one of those decisions could wind up shortening your life. You know, if you don't take the medicine, if you don't get any kind of um, adequate or nutritious diet, um, if you don't go to that health visit, you know, to that doctor because you can't afford the gas in your car or because the welfare rules say that you're not allowed to have a car and it's going to take three buses and you don't, you know, you don't have the time or the money to do that. Like any one of those things could result in a really serious incident. Um, and then I think even beyond that, we just see stress, 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 stress. Um, you know, you think you're stressed. I think I'm stressed. You know, people who are poor and who are trying to raise their kids and keep their kids safe and healthy, um, they are really stressed. So, you know, hypertension is through the roof and other typical health health responses when people are when people are under intense stress. We see that all the time with poor people and mental health too. Oh my God, people's you know people's anxiety and depression and all that stuff just goes through the roof when people are having to stitch together their economic lives and they don't know, you know, day to day, week to week, whether they're going to be able to make it work. So I think all those things are contributing to people just not living as long. This idea of ensuring poverty, can that actually be tied specifically to the changes that have taken place with the welfare system? Well, what what I want to call attention to and what the book calls attention to is that there was a time before 1996 where we, we as a society and the United States government made a kind of baseline promise to people. And we said, and it was a, it, it was a kind of insurance. Um, we, we said to people, if you meet certain criteria, right, if you have the economic need and if you're raising kids and if you meet whatever other you know, eligibility standards your state chooses to impose, then we promise you that you are going to receive some help. Now, that help was never fantastic. It never was enough to, like, make people rich. It wasn't even really enough to cover all of their basic needs. But at least it was something, right? It was some level of assurance or insurance to people to say, if you're really in need, you know, and the and you meet the criteria, then there will be a kind of a lifeline for you. What happened after 1996, the fundamental shift was that we stopped making that promise to people, right? So it's no longer a so-called entitlement. Um, there's no guarantee that even if you meet all the criteria, you know, even if you are poor, even if you are raising young children or doing other very significant caregiving work, um, even if you do all the things that your state government says you should do, um, there's no longer a promise that that assistance will be there. And so that's why we would say that we've gone from a system of, you know, at least providing a baseline assurance that there will be something there to, in a sense, ensuring people's poverty. We create more more chances that people are going to fall through the cracks, right? We took what was a very minimal safety net in the old days, kind of an inadequate safety net, but at least a safety net, and we turned it much more into a kind of Swiss cheese, and people can fall through those holes all too easily. That's what we mean by ensuring poverty. What's your hope with this book? I hope that especially people who think of themselves as progressives or feminists or liberals or Democrats, 
that people will be willing to go back and say, you know, the Democratic Party took a wrong turn in the 1990s. And President Clinton and his his portion of the Democratic Party thought that they needed to be very conservative in order to survive. But they gave too much away. They gave too much away to conservatives and Democrats. And I would hope that people today would be able to look back on that and say they made a mistake and they went too far, uh, especially they went too far in allowing these stereotypes of women and mothers and, and black people and poor people and now we have an opportunity to rethink, right? And we can start rethinking by by rethinking our anti-poverty programs and making sure that those are anti-poverty programs that really are about reducing or eliminating poverty and that that's the purpose of the program and that they're designed to that end, which right now they're not, right? So I think that's where we start. If we're going to be a compassionate society, if we're going to be a society that says, you know, we really care about mothers and children, and we really care about the most vulnerable among us, that is the place where we have to start to rebuild. And then beyond that, I think we also need to think about all of our families and the relationship between the labor market and and families throughout our system. And I would hope that we would we would rethink there as well. You know, what about child care for everybody? What about opportunities to take a leave from work because you have a an ill or elderly or disabled relative, you know, for all of us, we, you know, we have this family and medical leave program that nobody can afford to take because there's no money in it. So that's that's what I would hope is that this book could start a conversation. First, a conversation about the past. We could look back and say, you know, we made a mistake. The Democratic Party made a mistake in concert with the Republicans. Um, and that then we could say that that would be a basis for starting something new. At the poverty end of the scale, there are things we can do. And then at the other end of the scale, thinking about all of us, all of our families, all citizens, there are also things we can do. When we look at the Trump administration and exactly what is happening now with talk about um, sometimes the term welfare reform or welfare change is thrown around. What do you think we can actually really expect to see, if anything? I don't know what the Trump administration is going to try and do in the next couple of years, but um, they have tried. Um, one thing we know that they have tried and that they're, they're continuing to push is what they call work requirements in the Medicaid program, and that's very, very worrisome. So, you know, Medicaid is the health insurance program for people who are disabled and people who are elderly and, you know, people who are below any kind of income cutoff. An awful lot of people who are um, living in nursing homes uh, get that paid for through Medicaid. And, uh, and there are an awful lot of mothers and children who rely on Medicaid for their health insurance. And I think what happened there was the Republicans just picked up the playbook from the 1990s, and they said, look, we did so well with welfare reform and the supposed work requirements in, uh, in the welfare reform of the 1990s, and we got the Democrats to go along with it, so now we can do this same thing in Medicaid. And, um, and a couple of states are trying it out. You know, we know, based on the welfare reform um, case study, 
that what's going to happen is that when these so-called work requirements are imposed, you know, people aren't going to get genuine work opportunities. Uh, it's going to cause people to just not apply for Medicaid, not even try and get that assistance, and it's going to cause bad health out- outcomes, especially for children. Um, so, uh, so that's one thing that I'm I'm pretty sure they're going to keep trying to do. They seem to have backed off their other plan, which was to impose work requirements for people who get food stamps or the the SNAP program, as it's called. Um, I think for now they've um, they've backed off from that. But that's another kind of crazy idea, you know. Uh, SNAP or food stamps, it's not a very generous program. It's only for food. Um, traditionally, it's been pretty uncontroversial in America that if, you know, if you need a little assistance to get food for your family, that that's something that we should allow you to get. But they're trying to make that into some kind of a welfare boogeyman, too, and to say that, you know, somehow there's there's something wrong with people who are getting those SNAP benefits and they have to be forced to work. They won't work on their own, et cetera. So um, anyway, I'm looking for I'm, – I'm hoping that doesn't come back, but it might. Um, and then otherwise, I think they're just going to try and and play welfare, welfare, welfare as much as they can. They're going to try and call, you know, the Medicare program, which is health care for – for old people, older people who have more resources, they're going to try and call that welfare. They're going to try and call Social Security welfare. They're going to try and call our disability insurance program that we rely on if we get um, disabled through some kind of injury at work. They're going to try and call that a welfare program. They're going to play it, I think, as much as they can. And that's another reason why we have to both look back and look forward, because um, if the Democrats keep saying, as they have for 20 years, that welfare reform was a success, then the Republicans are going to just going to be like, well, you know, you said it was a success, so let's try it. Let's try the same kinds of strategies in every other program. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I think uh, people are going to have to call it up because I think the Republicans may well just try and pick up that playbook and apply it to every single social program. The book is entitled "Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective." Felicia Cornblue, our guest in this portion of our program. She's Assistant Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. Um, The book coming our way from University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you very much for being kind with your time and sharing some information with us on this topic and also on our program today. Thank you. Another guest is going to join us after our top of the hour update here on The Fan. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. This should be a wonderful discussion. Joined by um, Governor Ambassador Madeline May Cunin. She served as the 77th Governor of Vermont from 1985 until 1991 as a member of the Democratic Party. She was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. Uh, I had spoken with her a number of years back on her book, The New Feminist Agenda. She is joining us on our program now to talk with us about a new publication entitled Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, a Memoir. It's so nice to speak with you again. Good morning. Good morning. Part of the... um, 
I guess, way of getting us started is some people refer to you as governor. Some people refer to you as ambassador. Um, your tenure as governor obviously was longer, but ambassador was more recent. Does one title resonate more with you than the other? Not really. Um, governor is a little more use, useful in Vermont, you know, where people know me as that. But uh, both positions were very fascinating and a great honor to hold. And, uh, you know, coming back to Switzerland as ambassador, the country where I was born, that was kind of a homecoming, too, and, and had its own challenges. In this book, one of the things that you talk about fairly early on, you use the phrase, I am not old. <laughs> what would being old be like? Well, being old, well, you know, in a way I am, in a way I'm not. Um, the reason I said that I wrote a poem uh, where I was at a jazz concert, and uh, it just got to me, you know, I was I was pounding my feet and uh, swinging my arms. It was just so lively and captivating. So I felt I felt uh, the same as the young people there. So I think. Obviously, at the age of 85, I can't deny that I'm old. But in this book, this book is different from the other books that I wrote because I'm turning more inward. I'm trying to examine how my body and my mind are changing as I make this transition to old age. Well, how old do you actually feel? (laughs) Well... Probably about 45. <laughs> yeah. But some days when I'm climbing stairs and my knees speak to me, uh, I know that uh, I'm changing. But the important thing is I can still do the stairs. Well, that along with the fact that, you know, you still have your, your faculties uh, completely about you. Because if you have your mind, I think... That's one of the most important things that a lot of us really think about as we start to uh, age. You know, we want to be able to preserve our, our, our mental faculties. So if you've got that, that's some people say that's half the battle right there. That's right. That's right. And to still retain your curiosity, you know, to want to know what's happening, uh, what's going to happen the next day or to meet a new person or get a new idea, um, to just, you know, be alive. Um, as as the uh, future is shorter, you live more intensely and, you know, sort of carpe diem, seize the day, because uh, you don't know how many days are ahead. As the first woman in U.S. history to have been elected governor of a U.S. state three times, did you feel specific pressures? Well, yes and no. I mean, once you're in the job, you try to do the best you can, no matter what. But I also knew that I would be a role model for future women in that position. And so I was conscious of that. But, uh, you know, I did my best. And uh, it was 
it was a challenge, but it was also a great adventure. And uh, I could also create new pathways for other women. About half the people in my administration were female, and that was because there was a lot of talent out there. But you know, one way to define power is to use power to empower others. And so I, I did consciously try to do that. You have identified with the feminist movement since the 1970s. In terms of your feminist awakening, if I can phrase it that way, what kind of role did books play? Did this book play, well, inviting it, I entered a, a different zone of my thinking. Uh, when I was in politics and a public figure, I felt I had to be very careful, like most politicians feel, with some exceptions, of course. But I had to watch my words. I had to watch how I behaved. And being out of politics, being a former governor and former ambassador, I have a certain freedom um, that I can wear what I want to wear and, and speak what I want to speak. Of course, still within some limits, of course, because you never totally stop putting words through a sieve to uh, keep out anything that might boomerang or, or offend people. So, uh, but I'm, I'm still very much engaged in equality for women, and I have been all of my public life. And, of course, this has been such a banner year where more women than ever ran for local office for Congress. And it's so healthy. It's so exciting that uh, women are saying, you know, we belong at the table. If we don't like what's happening in this country or in our state, we have to have a vote. We have to have a voice. And the best way to do that is to really get jump into the political system. It was 1933 when you were born in Zurich. How did your family know when it was time to leave? Switzerland was surrounded by countries invaded, invaded by the Nazis. So it got awfully close. It's a small country. I mean... There was, of course, Germany, and the day we arrived in the United States, Italy, Italy was in the war. Uh, France, it was, it was getting dangerous, and especially as a Jewish family, we felt the best way to handle this scary situation was to come to America. Some of my family went to Israel. Some went to. Great Britain, so people who who could flee did. Having been a refugee, how did that impact and how does it impact how you feel about immigration these days? Of course, having, as you know, been an immigrant, I have a very positive attitude towards immigration. I have to... But, I have to accept the fact that being an immigrant from Europe uh, was easier than the situation is for immigrants today in America, from Latin America and Asia and, and the Middle East. It's a struggle, and there are quotas, and there 
they're coming with often without an education or training for a career. But the motive is exactly the same for a better life. I mean, we were a middle-class family. My mother was a widow. My father died when I was two. So it was different. But we, uh, we couldn't. My mother spoke a little English, and I learned English pretty quickly. But I think being an immigrant also gave me that old-fashioned patriotic feeling about America. And my mother would say to me and my brother, anything is possible in America. And we believed that. And that was our, our attitude and our optimism. I mean, that's one reason I got into politics, because I believed that I could do that, that uh, anything was possible in America. Now, you're not a Holocaust survivor, but you do harbor Holocaust survivors' guilt. How do you explain that? Well, members of my family were killed in the Holocaust, and aunt and uncle, and uh, my father was German, uh, though my parents lived in Switzerland, and on my mother's side, they were French. So, I don't know how many were killed, uh, but I know that my aunt and uncle uh, died in a concentration camp, and a cousin died at Auschwitz. Uh, so I was affected, and if my parents had stayed in Germany, I, I would be one of the victims. So I feel a, a great connection uh, with with those people, and I feel they should be remembered somehow and not just die as the anonymous six million. Madeline Cunin joins us on our program on The Fan this morning. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program following our 8 o'clock update on The Fan. Uh, Madeline is joining us to talk with us about her latest book entitled Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. We're talking on our program with uh, Madeline May Hunan. Uh, she is uh, someone who has had a very interesting lifestyle, uh, to say the least. She served as the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 to 1991 as a member of the Democratic Party. She was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education of the United States from 1993 to 1996. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. She's written three previous books. She is joining us to talk with us about her latest book, Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. And she's our guest in this portion of our program. What did you know of your father's life before his marriage to your mother? Sadly, my father died when I was very young, two and a half, and... uh... He committed suicide, which is still a hard thing for me to say um, because it's such a loss even after all these years. I knew he was, he he grew up in a small rural town in Germany and was self-educated and became a successful businessman. 
he imported shoes from the United States and, and other places and had shoe shops uh, in about five different cities. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, suffered from depression. And he was actually in World War One, where I now consider, having read about a little bit about him, that he had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and uh, though they didn't have a name or a diagnosis for that at the time. Disposing of sentimental artifacts is something that most people have or will have to deal with. You have had some possessions that are of interest not just to you, but to the country. What was it like downsizing to prepare to move to where you now live? Well, I think every every person who downsizes, it's a common common practice as you get older, as you move into a smaller place or, or assisted living. Um, it's... Each object has some meaning, you know, like a, uh, a silver tea set reminded me of my mother and my aunt and reminded me that I hadn't polished it in years. Um, books go through various chapters of your life. So you're really shedding uh, some of your history. But at the same time, you're kind of leaving yourself open for new experiences in a new kind of life. So it can be hard, but then it can be sort of liberating at the end. Uh, and that's how I describe downsizing. I, I describe different things that I've experienced, you know, how my body is changing at this age. Um, but in the book, I also try to be... Um, upbeat uh, because I can still enjoy a sunset and and you have more time to enjoy things that are happening to you now and uh, I think it's just important to make friends the hardest thing is when friends die and when family members die and so it is a period of loss but it is also a period of gain if you're fortunate enough to experience it. I don't want to make getting old just a happy experience, and it's your fault if you're not doing it right. I, I think it, if you have to have a certain amount of financial security and uh, have, hopefully, family and friends. Um, and then the ability to make new friends. You founded an organization called Emerge Vermont. Would you tell us a little bit about the organization, why you founded it? Well, we've had a wonderful year. Emerge is also in other states. And what we do is we recruit and train women to run for office. We don't raise money for them. Uh, Other organizations do that. But women still believe most of the time that they don't know how to run for office. And we're so used to taking a course or to tell us what to do in other fields. 
but there's, there's no degree in running for office. So we teach people how to speak in public, how to run a campaign. And this year has just been fantastic. As more women have run, uh, and women of color and women who've had other careers like nurses or teachers. So it's a wonderful trend uh, to help make democracy work uh, so that we are not we are not ruled by, pardon me for saying it, old white men, which is the predominant portrait you see when you see members of Congress. At this point... In your life, with the things that you've accomplished, your work, are you happy? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Most of the time I am, yes. I, I mean, I consider myself fortunate uh, that I'm basically healthy uh, and that I can still get out and do things and march in the Women's March when I did. And I have wonderful children and grandchildren and good friends, so I'm basically happy. That doesn't mean I never get depressed or I never get upset. I do. I'm a normal person in that sense. But fundamentally, yes, I am happy. Madeline May Cunin talking with us on our program. Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, the book, Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly, good luck with this book, and good luck continued with your your work and your life. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bob Salter, and joined by Dale McGowan on our program. Uh, Dale has an interesting uh, background. He is a uh, Harvard uh, human, Humanist of the Year. Uh, he teaches parenting uh, workshops across the uh, country and serves as executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief. He's the author of two books previously. We're going to be talking about his latest book. It has a very interesting title, In Faith and in Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. The book is published by Amacom. It's nice to have you join us on our program, first of all. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Bob. This latest book, um, what's the inspiration for it? Well, the inspiration for it was uh, the growing number of uh, people who are in these marriages, in marriages between religious believers and non-believers. And uh, the initial inspiration was actually my own marriage. Uh, Twenty-three years ago, I married a Southern Baptist, and uh, I am an atheist. So uh, right away it was a, uh, a topic of interest to me, and as I got to know more people in that situation, I realized that some resources were really needed. What was the experience like, or what has the experience been like, in your marriage? Uh, well, uh, our situation was interesting. This is one of the reasons that I, uh, it didn't occur to me to write the book for some time. Uh, we had very little conflict. You would think that a Southern Baptist and an atheist would have nothing in common, <laughs> no basis for, uh, for building a uh, relationship. But we actually had very few issues. We found that uh, the difference between us was in beliefs, in relative abstractions, you know, what we thought was true about the universe, uh, not in values. Our values what we thought was good, what we thought was important in life, uh, those were very much aligned from the beginning. So uh, we had relatively little uh, conflict, but I began to uh, meet more and more people who were in these situations who had different variables in play, and uh, they frequently ran into a lot of conflict. So I wanted to see what the difference was between my relatively tension-free marriage and somebody else's that, that sometimes ends in divorce. When you say they had 
you know, these sort of things that were issues? What kinds of issues? Well, the issues range from, um, you know, interpersonal issues between the couple. Uh, if you have a religious partner, for example, who thinks that uh, her spouse is going to hell, that's something that's going to get in the way of the uh, of the marriage. That's a um, uh, that's going to be tension-inducing. If you have an atheist who thinks that a religious partner is not intelligent, uh, that's going to get in the way. Uh, dogmatic thinking, uh, a desire to convert the partner, uh, is one of the strongest tension markers that I found in these relationships. Uh, you have to go into it saying, uh, I accept you as you are. I am not in this relationship to change you uh, to be what I am. And if couples can master some of those variables and keep communication open, things tend to go much better. That idea of keeping the communication open, and I'm assuming when you say that keeping communication open means keeping the communication, you know, as full and as free as possible, too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. What you have to do is uh, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, you're in a relationship, uh, you're sharing a life, and uh, if there's something that's important to one of the partners to talk about, to engage in, um, then it really has to be okay to talk about that. We can't continue to push things to the uh, uh, back into the shadows. That just builds up in a relationship in a toxic way. And when things are not, you know, put out there in that honest fashion where, you know, somebody feels comfortable enough to be able to talk about this with, you know, their life partner, uh, when that happens, I mean, it would seem that is just a prescription for conflict. Oh, it absolutely is. And this is something that even outside of the realm of religion uh, is well known in, in uh, relationship, uh, uh, among relationship experts. Uh, having open communication, having a willingness to confront things honestly, uh, to be honest about your own feelings, all of these are the things that uh, add up to a, uh, a strong relationship. And if you keep something, especially something as potentially important as religious beliefs, uh, bottled up. If you keep that uh, you know, to yourself and don't talk about what the things are that, uh, that bother you in the relationship or that the things that you need uh, in the relationship along those lines, uh, that's not going to get any better. <laughs> that's not something that uh, over time is, is going to uh, typically diminish. It will usually go the other way. The idea of communication is one aspect of this. Where does, you know, basic respect basically you're respecting the other person's views um, the other person's worldview where does that fall in this well this is an interesting uh, uh, topic I actually think it's one of the things that uh, is kind of a breakthrough is when people realize that they can respect a person uh, as an individual they can respect that person's right to hold the beliefs that they have and even the, the person's intentions in, in holding those beliefs without saying, yes, I respect the beliefs as well. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. We're in discussion with Dale McGowan. He's the author of In Faith and In Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. Radio.com We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. Ronald Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, in his background, is an obstetrician, uh, gynecologist, and medical author. Um, he is uh, joining us on our program. In his role specifically as the author of The Care of the Older Person, an Invaluable Resource for Care Providers. Now, just saying that title 
and it's probably got a lot of people's attention as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program, Dr. Kaplan. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, when we talk about this idea of society getting older, and there are a lot of people in society getting older, because as many people say, you know, you want to get older because the alternative is not not the greatest uh, thing to consider. Um, for somebody who's taking care of someone who is an older person, how challenging an experience can that be? Well, it can be very challenging. It depends the way you look at it. Uh, right now, uh, there are 50 million of us us including me, in uh, the United States alone. And uh, there's a predominance of uh, women over men in that statistic. And it can be challenging for a lot of reasons. Number one is uh, probably first and foremost is that traditionally retirement age is considered to be, uh, give or take, 65 years of age in our society. And the reasons for that are very interesting. Uh, namely, about 150 years ago, a German diplomat uh, decided, it was von Bismarck, <laughs> he decided that the uh, average age of death of his workers in Germany was about 67, so that if he retired them at 65 uh, with, a, with some kind of a bonus or payoff, then he could hire younger people and come away with much less money because, of course, younger people started a, a lower wage and then gradually worked their way up, or that's the way it was then. So we somehow, for 150 years, have kept this same idea in our heads that at 65 you lay off people, and that's rapidly becoming obsolete. So people are looking at a loss not only of uh, some of their income and some of their livelihood, but what they've been doing for a huge proportion of their life, uh, people don't realize until they until they quit or laid off or retired, they don't realize how much of their life is involved in their work. And especially if you find whatever work you're doing fulfilling and rewarding, as a lot of us do, thankfully, uh, when that goes away from your life, it leaves an enormous void, and that has to be filled. And yes, people have other activities, but they quickly find out that those other activities may not be as meaningful to them or as important to them as their work was. And they don't get the same level or feel that they get the same level of respect once they've left uh, the employed world. They, they don't feel that they matter as much. As far as their family goes, uh, people inevitably get sick and unfortunately die. And that may mean that even though you may be 65 or older and healthy, uh, you may lose a spouse, you may have a sick spouse, you may have other things happening to your friends and, and relations, and you're losing contacts that have been lifelong contacts and that have been meaningful and loving to you. And you 
as the years go on, can feel more and more isolated. I think I'm drawing much too bleak a picture here because a lot of us uh, develop a lot of other interests and do a lot of other things, like me talking to you on the radio. And you, you find fulfillment in other ways. To be perfectly trite about it, uh, one, one answer is to make a lot of younger friends, be, be around younger people, because inevitably the people you're around are going to, in one way or other, wander off or disappear. So when you're talking about that person or persons who are caring for someone who's older, I guess what should they be keeping in mind to kind of keep things in perspective, especially as if they're just starting out in that role as a caretaker? Well, it's really not as complicated as it sounds. The reason why we put out this book, and it's uh, put out by a, a group of people who are uh, very experienced academicians and clinicians who uh, are used to dealing with uh, the older population, what we realized is, is that we bank up almost 20% of the population, and that's going up to around a quarter of all people in the next 10 or 12 years. That's a lot of people. And the, the geriatricians, the people who are most trained to take care of this population, of course, they can't take care of a quarter of the population of the United States or uh, other countries. So... Uh, what we realized is, is we had to get information out into the field to everybody who takes care of older people. And if you want to sum the whole thing up in uh, two sentences, it's the golden rule. Do unto others the way you would like them to treat you. And uh, we, can, we can see that, uh, that if you're... If you're kind and if, if you're caring and if you want to spend the time and the energy to, to help somebody who's older, uh, then you're a good person. And we like to think of ourselves as good people, and especially the people we're around who we love and we care about, our relatives, our good friends that we've known for, for a long time, that we grew up with. Uh, it's it's a natural thing to do to want to help those people. And if each of us did that, it would ameliorate a, a tremendous amount of, of what is a, a burgeoning problem. The other thing is, for goodness sake, don't be condescending. An older person, just because they may be getting a little frail and maybe a little forgetful, and maybe they tend to fall down here and there, that doesn't mean they're stupid. They have a vast life experience, probably better than yours if you're much younger than, than them. And they, they know a lot of stuff. And not only that, they can sense how you feel towards them the same way any of us can tell who's real and who's phony and who's, who really has cares for us and who's really just there for some other reason for the money or, or because they have to. 
you want people around you who are genuinely caring. And you have to understand that the person you're taking care of or helping is at least on the same level as you, and maybe uh, intellectually even on a higher level because they've been around for so long and they know so many things. Uh, so they can, they can sense condescension. We can sense condescension immediately. We know who's trying to be nice to us uh, just to uh, get rid of us or, or, uh, or uh, to come off as a nice person as opposed to being genuinely good. So it's, the most important thing is to be caring and not to condescend. And the rest of it is having a little knowledge of what's going on with the person you're taking care of and to know some signs and symptoms so that you can get them to appropriate medical help or whatever other facilities they need at the appropriate time. Mm -hmm. Another thing we're learning is don't institutionalize people unless you absolutely have to. And even if people have to move into a different type of living than they're used to, it doesn't have to be a, a vast difference between what they're experiencing now and where you want them to be and where, in fact, they want to be. And as a matter of fact, right now, besides things like retirement homes and residences, there's a whole middle layer of something called active aging communities. This is for people who are uh, physically adept and they're, and they're mentally active and they, uh, they don't need to be in some kind of a home. All they need is, is a, a nice place to be with, with a lot of uh, ability to do exercise and to have fun and to get together and, and to pursue their lives. Dr. Kaplan, the author of The Care of the Older Person, an Invaluable Resource for Care Providers. And we were talking about older folks and making decisions that are important and that are basically life-changing and sometimes making a decision to give up a career. Now, before our update and messages, one of the things that you mentioned, actually the last thing that you mentioned, Dr. Kaplan, is something that probably got a lot of people's attention when you talked about the idea of some of your colleagues in the medical community making that decision not to go back into an operating room again. And many of us have made that decision. We make it for ourselves. It's very, very rare, very rare, that the, the medical staff or, or the, uh, the governing board of a hospital or the uh, federal or state authorities have to come in and say, this guy's got to stop because he's a menace to society. And those are the, the things you read about in the paper, hear about in the news. It's very, very rare, right? You know, it's, it's most of us are smart enough and wise enough to make a decision that we're here to help people. And the day we feel that we're not helping people 100%, that's the day we walk. And we all make that decision voluntarily. It, it's an old concept, but a good one. So, yes, if... if at some point, you're on the road, right? And you're driving your car, and you say, geez, I'm not seeing too well here. 
so you stop driving at night. How many of us make that kind of a decision? Nobody tells us to stop driving at night, right? But you say, okay, maybe I'm not as good on the road as I used to be at night. A lot of people, younger people, love to drive at night. There's less traffic. The illumination is good. Uh, the truck drivers who are on the road are generally pros, so they don't do anything stupid usually. So it's a great time to drive. But at some point in your life, you say, okay, I'm not going to drive anymore at night. And you make that decision. Nobody makes it for you. If, and if you're, a, if you're a, a wise person and you have your wits about you, then you make that decision. Again, it, I would say it's relatively rare that somebody has to take away your car keys and, or that the state authority has to say, guess what, we're not issuing you a new driver's license or worse, we're revoking your driver's license, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important for the individual and for the society, really, that we all have that freedom of choice and we make the right decisions for ourselves and for our friends and neighbors and, and the greater society that we, what we're here for is to do good, not harm. And now, if you're in a situation... I think the other thing that maybe you're getting to, so maybe I'll get to it first, is that I think we should all be prepared for eventualities that might happen to us, a hospitalization, a major sickness, death. Mm -hmm. So many people uh, die without a will. Make a will. Make sure that there's some kind of an orderly transition. Give a power of attorney, maybe, to somebody you really, really trust. You'd better be sure you really trust that person if you're giving them a power of attorney. And it, and it could be limited or, or it, it could be unlimited, depending. And it could be a, the type of power of attorney that only comes up uh, say, if you are in a debilitating sickness, then that person is not allowed to take over until you're hospitalized and some doctor is attested to this, something like that. And, you, and we should all have, you should have something called a living will. You should be able to, even if you're unconscious, that uh, there doesn't have to be a huge discussion about whether to keep you alive interminably or let you go. I think these are things reasonable people can do, and you'd be amazed how many people don't do that. Maybe a majority don't do, do all those things. Dr. Kaplan, thank you very much for your kindness with your time and uh, the information you've shared with us. I know this information is very valuable for the folks listening to us this morning, too. Well, I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I really appreciate you getting this information out there because I really think it's important. Thanks. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law.